This seems like a good time to talk about our sponsor, MindLift. MindLift makes magic mushroom microdose capsules. Each capsule contains 100% pure psilocybin, otherwise known as magic mushrooms. There are three dose sizes, mild, standard, and potent. Each item has been formulated to give people a just perceptible high, where they should still be able to carry out their day-to-day -day functions of their lives. The ingredient has been sourced from an organic farm in the mountains of Western Canada. I take it and have nothing but good things to say about it. Microdosing can help alleviate depression and remind people to have a zest for life. I find it helps me with those things, as well as sometimes making me more productive and creative. So if you like, if you, sorry, if you live in Canada, please check out MindLift at mindlift.me. That's M-I-N-D-L ift dot me and you can enter eclectic folk one word uppercase at checkout for 15% off all products hello i'm joined here with mr salamander today how are you doing mr salamander i'm doing great thank you for having me on mr cat <laughs> yes um so we usually structure these interviews as like a brief overview of sort of your background before we get into the nitty gritty of what you've been up to these days. And uh, with you, for our audience, we, we've been friends for, how long has it been? Almost. Seven? No, more than seven, because we started in 2013, I think, right? That was when we did our meeting. We did it. We so we did a like we we can we don't have to say the specific brand, but we can say like that we did yeah. do a like a coding boot camp together, right? Like yes. a program to learn how to code. Yeah. Was that twenty thirteen? I thought it was twenty fourteen or something. Maybe I had more years in the industry than I gave myself credit yeah. for. Yeah, no, I, think, <laughs> I think we've been friends for eight years. Okay. Yeah, eight plus now. Wow, that's cool. So we we. Um, yeah, we did that boot camp together and tried to start a little startup that didn't really pan out. Yeah. But it was a learning experience. Yeah. It was fun. Valuable. Yeah. We were a little hashtag entrepreneurs for a little bit. <laughs> hashtag entrepreneurs. We sure were. Yeah. One of us should have figured out how to do sales and marketing, I guess. That was, to me, that was the problem. It was. But at the same time, we both also were trying to break into software engineering. So yeah. we were both trying to be developers. Right. Which was kind of the main goal. For, then, yeah. yeah, I mean, I got sidetracked like from that project where I stopped thinking that was the main goal and the main goal for me became like to make that successful. Yeah, um, no, of course that was important. But like the process of building it, I learned a lot about software engineering too. And that's probably how I got my, my foot in the door ultimately. Yeah. 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 Hmm. 
Okay, so Mr. Salamander, uh, where where do you come from? Like, what's your what's your like background, your story from like your childhood and stuff? So I was born in Shenzhen, China. Fantastic city. Yeah, little really popular now. Really, kind of like at the epicenter of a lot of,、uh, I guess, like Chinese manufacturing and especially technology manufacturing.、Um, I was born to a successful businessman father and a countryside、uh, mother. And I moved to Canada when I was about four and a half, five ish.、Um, and I think my parents had a very contentious relationship. How did your parents meet? Your dad was a successful entrepreneur, but your mom was in the countryside. Yeah, she had come to Shenzhen for like a job as like I don't know some kind of not a secretary, but some type of like low level enterprise job of some kind, right? Yeah.、Um, and they got introduced through a mutual friend,、mm-hmm. from my understanding.、Mm. And then, I mean, it's a different era in China, right? There's like a lot of expectations from society for you to get married, have kids, kind of just like do that whole thing.、Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's. I want to say it's an arranged marriage, but there's definitely some type of pressure for you to like find a wife or find a husband, have children. In this case, one child, and then start your family,、mm-hmm. which I think is how my parents met. My mom, my mom was really young when she met. Got married and then had me. I think she was like twenty or twenty one. Oh wow! Yeah. So then they moved to Canada. My dad was young too. I mean, he, when he moved to Canada, he was twenty seven. So、oh. he had me at twenty three or something. So he was already a successful entrepreneur at that age. I think when they met, he was not. He was just building his company, like just starting it. But by the time that I was born, and then in the five years that I had grown up, and they moved out, he became really, really successful. Wow. Yeah. So by the time we came here, though, like my dad's like really odd,、um, and I think that's shaped a lot of kind of my view of the world and my perspective.、Um, he's really he comes from a really hard background, so as a result, he's very frugal, especially、mm. with a fa- with a family. He's extremely frugal.、Mm. So even though we're wealthy,、uh, or we were. Wealthy in the sense that we were middle class.、Mm. Um, I was under under the impression through stories and through like just conversations with my mom and also people that knew him that he was extremely wealthy. But、mm. we were living way within our means, like not nothing, nothing super low, nothing,、right? but not ostentatious at all. Not at all. He's、yeah. driving like a Honda or a Toyota or something. No. So ironically, the car is where he would splurge a little bit. Like,、okay. So we would drive. We drive like a Lexus. Yeah. Yeah. A little yeah. more like just a grade higher than Toyota. Okay, but, but it's、know. not. It's still not like a、yeah. Lamborghini or no, something. No, we're not whipping around in like hundred thousand dollar cars.、No. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So,、um, so his success. Came after he emigrated to Canada. Then no, so he was already successful, but he moved us out of China into Canada in order to keep us safe. It's like a very common, I think, like reason why so many people immigrated in the nineties,、mm. because China at the time was going through a lot of reform, or a lot of reform had not yet happened in the government, and. In turn, like the private security sector, or even like、uh, the public security sector with police and whatever, whatever. I think also with business in general, it's always kind of dangerous in China because there's no real regulation and laws. So people are probably constantly breaking the law in some way.、Mm. 
um, what, mainly like white collar crime, like some kind of tax fraud or whatever. And I think a lot of it was done moving us out in order to protect us. I don't know what exactly it is, but that was always what he said. It's just dangerous in China. Mm. So uh, you, you, we want to move you to somewhere that's safer. I think another reason also was that like my mom and my dad had some contention in their relationship already. So I think it was his way of just kind of preventing a, a, a divorce from happening in his family by moving my mom to a different situation. She was also young, right? She was like mm. 25 years old. I could not imagine possibly having a kid at that age. Mm. Um, but the way that influenced me in a lot of ways, and especially like to me now, is that it kind of gave me, right from the jump, my mom was like, okay, you're going to financially take care of me when I was like five years old. Um, so since then, I just, I kind of always like had this desire or this interest and need, I guess, internally, this goal to try and be successful so that I could at least maintain some kind of lifestyle for my mother mainly. But meanwhile, your father's still out there. Like, did you, did you not feel you could depend on him for that? I think that there were times where I th was on the fence about it, like, I think my mom thought that she could be financially taken care of, but she just really didn't like their relationship. Like mm -hmm. even despite having come from this more conservative old school Chinese background where, you know, people endure, right? People endure cheating, people endure like really uh, a lack of love in the relationship, et cetera. It's kind of the norm in China. So people, especially for that generation, like mm -hmm. no one really cared in that sense. But my mom was always different. She always like, I think my dad always says she watched too many Western love movies. So she always <laughs> had this idea of like wanting real romantic love. Yeah. Um, and apparently like when they first started dating, my dad was like that for a year. But then the moment they got married, he like switched up. So she was like, whoa, what is that? Why did that happen? Right. Mm. It's just a long con kind of. Ooh. Yeah. And she was a little bit too open with a lot of like what she was going through with me growing up in that sense. Like uh, I got really affected by that. Um, so, so that really she she would kind of like uh, like slag off or what, I don't know the was, is that the right expression like she would say bad things about your father and it would yeah kind of rub and off he and would like, also say bad things about her to me oh yeah they were, it's just it's just you know it's a different era they just yeah. don't give a shit right yeah, yeah they're yeah. just super open yeah. and like honestly don't give really really don't understand enough about like what you probably shouldn't say to your kids mm. now that is like common knowledge right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think like so much of that has shaped who I am in terms of like what I'm doing, why I've been doing these things that I'm doing. Uh, even I think like my viewpoint on relationships, et cetera, a lot of it is just all through that. And I don't think that's a very, honestly, it's not a very unique story in that sense. I actually think that's really common amongst a lot of Chinese kids my age, mm. which mm. is like the, what are we? Are we Gen Y? Gen are you a millennial or no, after millennial I'm, is gen z i don't think you're gen z i think you're a millennial yeah i think we're are we we're, we're both millennials right well i'm a bit older than you but i i think we're both millennials yeah i think yeah. so so yeah. the millennial chinese generation yeah i think especially immigrants have this background i don't think mine is honestly that unique in yeah. that sense yeah right um but just before we get to that let's sort of like so you came over here when you're four and a half or five yeah um like was that a hard adjustment? Did you know any English? How did how did how did you make that adjustment? Do you remember China very well? Not at all. And do you remember going through that sort of transition? 
Um, not at all. Not really, because I think I was young enough that it was really easy to pick up English, make new friends. Yeah. I think in general, that was not really hard. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, like, growing up, was your father at home, or was he sort of back and forth, or in China a lot? He's definitely back and forth a lot. Yeah. And I've come to now understand that my dad is definitely on the spectrum in some degree. Yeah. He's never been diagnosed, so I can't say for certain, but he definitely exhibits a lot of characteristics of it. Mm. Um, and in that sense, I think, uh, we just were never close. He, he didn't know how to talk to me, but he would lecture me a lot, like mm. about world history, uh, philosophy, culture, etc. So I think I absorbed a lot of my current perspective, which is like generally quite philosophical from that. Mm. But outside of that, we definitely did not have any emotional closeness. Mm. Yeah, but he was only there maybe three months out of a year. Okay. And the only interactions we had were maybe this like lecture he would give me once every week or something like that. Okay, so I guess that must have affected you growing up. Like, did you feel, you didn't really feel love from him and he wasn't around as often? At all. So you you probably developed a close relationship to your mother. I did, I did. I developed a really close relationship with my mother because uh, in one sense, we were the only people that had each other. Mm. Um, here we didn't know anybody else Mm. Um, and also she used me as I mentioned like in a lot of ways as like an emotional crutch for what she was going through which was very hard because to this day she barely still speaks English right Mm. she just kind of like tried to survive in this country like by figuring out how to support me Mm. emotionally while she herself was also honestly a child my mom has also this mentality that she's like a princess (laughs) so she also is very like I don't know, like, she did have to grow from it, but she still sees herself that way. Like, mm. she's she kind of sees herself as somebody to be taken care of, not mm. necessarily somebody who's fully responsible for their mm. own life. Right, right. Which is a really interesting thing about her, I think. <laughs> I don't think I've met many people like that. Huh. Yeah. I have met a couple like that. Mm. I think I dated a girl like that. Yeah, I think, I think in China, it's quite a common trope, mm. right? I think like it's still kind of like that 1940s mentality where women don't really work, at least for that generation. Right. Like yeah. now, of course, yeah, everyone yeah. works. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. she's held on to that. Belief. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, if she, like if she has like if her husband is wealthy enough, where she she can totally live that way and doesn't have to think about it, that that contributes to that mindset. Yeah. Like she's never had to, not like she's never been forced to confront that belief system. Yeah, I mean, until I think, so recently, like about seven, eight years ago, maybe eight, actually eight plus years ago, uh, my dad had a big bout of infidelity that she discovered when she visited China. Hmm. Um, And she read like some text messages or whatever, and she realized that that was happening. Hmm. Um, She like blew up Adam. And then from there, she started to suddenly like reanalyze her whole life. Hmm. Um, And then she started working a little bit. Hmm. as like a clothes sales associate no way yeah and it was interesting because i think the job really like was good for her and she like really wanted to work so one thing was that i believe there were points in time so i can't a hundred percent say that my mom always wanted to be taken care of Hmm. there when she met my dad he wasn't wealthy by any means Hmm. right so she didn't marry him for money Hmm. and at the same time like she wanted to work but my dad also further 
wanted to control the situation. He's very chauvinistic. So he mm. was like, no, you don't work. You take mm. care of the household. Mm. I work. Mm. And he was really forceful of that. Um, mm. So I think like all those things combined, of course, like created this situation. Mm. Now, do I think she could have fought back and then like probably worked? Yes, if she cared enough about it. But mm. I don't think, you know, again, was it the societal pressure? Was it the societal norm? her own interest in being taken care of, all those things. She kind of also accepted that lifestyle, right? Mm. You could look at it from many perspectives and justify it anywhere or the other. Mm. But I guess this, at the end of the day, this is the situation that came about. Mm. Yeah. Cool. I got it. Um, so what was it like then growing up as like, uh, as like a, an immigrant, young immigrant child in Canada? So I'm of Chinese background. Uh, I think a lot of my struggle was with this identity of being Chinese in a culture that was honestly more largely black and white, hmm. like literally black versus white. Hmm. Um, and it's a very common thing in American culture that seems to in some ways bleed over to Canadian culture. Hmm. We're definitely more diverse and more multifaceted. And I was definitely surrounded by a lot more Chinese people, hmm. But I never really related to Chinese people in terms of their cultural similarities. Hmm. Um, I always related more so to both a mix of white and black culture. Hmm. And I think maybe that's because I wanted to actually integrate into this culture. Hmm. I know that there's a lot of Chinese immigrants who have a really hard time immigrating and they really kind of like stick in their own circles and there's this version of the Chinese American and Chinese Canadian experience that exists inside of North America. Mm. It's not like the Chinatowns, whatever kind of experience, but yeah. there's definitely like, a, I don't know, you're still really into Chinese trends and Chinese music and all your yeah. friends are Chinese. Yeah, yeah. And you guys speak Chinese yeah. or like you guys speak a mix of it, right? Right. And you hang out at Chinese places like bubble tea places <laughs> and like karaoke bars and whatnot. Right. I was always really opposed to that. And I think it's because I was exposed really early on to a lot of Western media. So I was like, oh, I want that lifestyle. Huh. I want to be part of that circle. I don't huh. want to be like this. Yeah. So as a result, I, I for a long time, I didn't like being Chinese. Uh -huh. But interestingly, I think I had a big change of heart or change of mind when I turned, when I was in university, sorry. I don't remember my age. I think I was 18 maybe. Yeah. And I watched the movie Hero with Jet Li. Okay. And because I had been told a lot of different Chinese philosophy and stories and cultures from my dad. Mm. That movie really gave me like an awakening where it kind of like put it all together for me. And I was like, oh, wow, this is what be, this is like a core tenet of being Chinese, this movie. What, what's the movie about? I, I think I've seen it, but I can't remember. Oh, so Jet Li plays this character. He's an unknown, unnamed warrior. And he is... It's set in contemporary times. No, it's okay. set. It's set in the past. Okay, and it, you don't know exactly when, or maybe you do. I don't remember the exact details of the time. But there's an emperor who has been unifying China. I think it might be the first emperor of China, the Qin Shi Huang, right? Yeah. So, in this movie, he's been conquering lots of regions, and he, the warriors from one of these regions has been conquered. Mm. So he, um, the emperor, had this decree where if somebody had defeated these different warriors or like did great feats mm. on behalf of his conquest mm. um that warrior would then in turn get the privilege of coming into the emperor's court and becoming closer to him right mm. so the story for anybody who hasn't seen it i'm about to ruin it um essentially at that time the emperor there's like like china china at that time 
had a lot of different, I want to say they were like ceremonies or like traditions that must be upheld, especially when it came to the emperor. Like mm. no one was allowed near the emperor from like a really far distance, right? Mm. Unless you could prove in some way that you were closer and closer within his inner circle. Mm. Um, or you received some type of reward for your accomplishments, right? Mm. So this warrior had defeated three very key people um, throughout his time. Mm-hmm. So these three people each represented a different facet of Chinese philosophy, which is what made it interesting because while you're watching this movie and it's this badass martial arts film, mm. you're also learning a lot about like the Chinese perspective on life and like conquest and statecraft and philosophy and existentialism. Mm. And it's all posed in this very beautifully shot artistic way. It's actually a very deep film. Mm. Um, I'm going to have to rewatch it. I remember the yeah, movie. You should. It's yeah. really good. But as I was watching, I was like, wow, like I'm learning a lot about like Chinese culture and I'm putting it all together. Right. But also what happens is warrior gets closer and closer to the king with every subsequent victory because the king is like rewarding him, right? But then he gets close enough and the warrior reveals himself to be like of one of these conquered nations that the emperor has destroyed. So he wanted to get this close so that he could kill him, assassinate him. But before he does, he's like, let me ask you, you have one chance. Give me one reason why you did all this. What was this all for, Mm. right? And he's like, give me one word. And the guy writes the word, which is the Chinese word for heaven, right? And he says that the reason why I did this is because in this era of strife, if I do not unify all the lands under heaven, the wars will never end. So for the greater good, I will be the one to commit the sin of all of this bloodshed and all of this terror Mm. to bear the weight so that we can have a better future. Mm. And this was like a huge awakening moment for me. And after that point, I actually became very proudly Chinese, I think, because I suddenly understood what made my culture and my people different from the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. was that unification was like a necessary evil for China. But China's, but at a larger point, if you take a step back, what China's always trying to do is for what it believes to be the better of society. Now, is there corruption? Is there, of course, like a lot of different facets and factors that would make you think, oh, this, of course, there's still human greed and selfishness and whatever. And lots of people in like the government are doing these types of things, right? Mm. Yes. But in the culture and in the teachings and in our, in our, I guess, like the very core of us as Chinese people, and what we learn in our upbringing is, and the society as, as a whole, there is this fabric of wanting to do something for the greater good of your people, hmm. right? And I think to some degree, it's still always there in spite of all these things. Kind of like how in America, there's this strong sense of freedom, like self-freedom and self-expression. Hmm. Like, of course, there is conformity and homogeneity in, in the society as well. Hmm. But within the US, there's still this like that's strong the Like that's an there. ideal. Yeah, that's exactly. like a strong ingrained ideal. Exactly. Yeah, but in China, I think there's more of this like desire, this d- this want, this purpose for like your people. Hmm. Hence, why I think the statecraft is actually very effective. Why it's able to do these things in the past fifty years is because it has this long-standing history and culture, and there's just this deep, insightful philosophy that is in everyone's like mind about just like wanting to do this betterment for your people and for your states. 
Yeah. So that that gave me a huge sense of like, oh, I can peg myself to this identity to some degree. Hmm. Right. And then from that point onwards, I was able to now incorporate this aspect of being Chinese into my personality. Hmm. And I think at that point is also how I ended up pursuing philosophy as my degree, hmm. which is which is what I did in um, in university. That's interesting. Yeah, me as well. I also studied philosophy. We've talked about that before, yeah. but mm-hmm. maybe the audience doesn't know that. Um, so, what what focus uh, did what did you focus on in your studies? Was there a particular philosopher or a particular strain of thought that um, that really resonated for you? Um, so, I generally liked pretty much much of all different branches of philosophy from like the ancient Greek philosophers to the uh, empiricists, right. To even like a lot of the more modern contemporary French philosophers. But I personally, my main focus was in logical argumentation Hmm. and kind of like logical structures, which is where you're talking about, like, it's almost closer to math. Um, So like Bertrand Russell? No. So less the philosophy, more the actual practical aspects. Like if you were like to say certain axiomatic, it's like axiomatic, right? So it's like if A, therefore B, A, then you know B must be true. It's like like that type of uh, axiomatic structure. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I really like that because I thought it would be practical. Hmm. But also I I, I did the philosophy degree because I was expecting to be uh, a lawyer. Hmm. I wanted to be a philosophy professor, but my dad was like, no, that's a very... Like that's what are you gonna do, right? Like, how many jobs are there for that? You yeah, know? I know. I know. Um, my friend's boyfriend uh, was a became. I I studied philosophy with him. I didn't know him that well, but I know he became a, a philosophy professor after he went mm. into that field. And it's hard to find work. And like these days, you know, it's hard to get tenure. Like, yeah, it's hard to break into that. So yeah. he, I remember he had to move to Memphis for a position. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I was very lucky in the sense that one of my closest friends was my professor in university. Mm. He wasn't in philosophy, but like I watched him kind of go through the bullshit of what working in academia is like. Oh, and so that he really w- turned me off of it as well. So he was sort of around your age? No, 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 no. He was he was he was my professor. Oh, okay. He was one of my professors. Yeah. Um, but we got really close. But uh, was he like a young professor? Or was he young, young enough? He was like thirty-five at the time. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, he wasn't some older dude. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. He, uh, he and he was extremely distinguished, extremely accomplished. Mm. He actually was like an Ivy League professor, um, and he ended up actually where I was due to an unfortunate series of circumstances in his life, mm. um, personal, not necessarily like professional. Mm. Um, which was a blessing for me because I don't think I would have ever encountered a professor of that caliber had it not been for those circumstances. Was he was he a Chinese as well? Yes, he was. Yeah, he was. And actually, we connected. We connected a lot about our identity in a similar way. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I think it was those two pivotal moments that made me start to understand myself better as a Chinese person living in the Americas. Hmm. Okay. So. Um... What was he a professor of then? Uh, political science. Okay. Yeah. And you took some political science classes. Yeah. So I did a double honors in philosophy and political science. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I um, that was more where my interests lie at that time in the philosophy that I studied it was more like political philosophy. Mm. I didn't minor in political science. I thought about it, but yeah. I just sort of ended up taking more like political philosophy classes. Yeah. Yeah. So like Hobbes, a lot of Hobbes. Yeah, so I did that, like the empiricist. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very interesting too. But Hobbes's political work is also interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, 
God, it's been so long. I'm pretty rusty on it. I honestly, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm also rusty. I actually, he might not even be an empiricist. I could have completely. Probably. Yeah, I think I think empiricist is more like Hume. Hume, I be, yeah, I mean, Hume was also skeptical about reality a lot, I yeah. think. He was like, maybe maybe that can manifest as like an extreme empiricism where if you, you can only believe in what you can like, like prove, yeah. like step by step. Yeah. Like what you can empirically prove. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I read Hume too and I admired him. But And then I got into the ex- existentialists like Sartre and um, what was that German guy? Sartre. Oh, Nietzsche? No, Nietzsche too, but after him there was another German guy. Oh, he was yeah. He was uh, accused of being a Nazi at one point. Yeah. Oh, man. I used to know it. So easily, I don't know. It's a it's, yeah, whatever. It's on the tip of the tongue. That guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those folks. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever study? Like, I took a class in East Asia, in like Asian philosophy. East Asia. It was a, yeah. by, it was taught by a horrible uh, TA or like a horrible professor. So I didn't get a lot of value in mm. it. He was um, Indian, and I don't think he really knew much about like Chinese philosophy. And he was like, he was kind of like. Um, like he believed in reincarnation to the point mm. where he's like, this is objectively true. And everyone's <laughs> like, well, like, how do you know? And he's like, it's just obvious. Like he, he couldn't, Oh my! like God. that kind of thinking yeah. from a philosophy professor is horrendous. Yeah. It's pretty bad. I did actually, I did take one, uh, but I had a brilliant professor. He mm. was like renowned in the field of Chinese philosophy. He was this like older white gentleman. Mm. His name was professor Barry Allen. Mm. Yeah. But he was a, brilliant philosopher and he taught us a lot about like really in depth about chinese um chinese philosophy yeah Yeah. although i will say i never really resonated a lot with china like a lot of these chinese philosophers that were kind of like i guess closer to like taoism or like buddhism Uh um i think like a lot of it seemed a little bit too culturally distant from my experience yeah you can kind of feel a lot of the similarity, I think, of like the Western progression of thought and philosophy from like Socrates to Plato mm. to Aristotle. Mm. And then throughout the empiricists, right, even including like if you were to take Nietzsche, if you were to take like Hume, all these like Rousseau, Stuart Mill. Yeah. Our evolution of our thinking has come very far, but you can feel the imprint of all those. Yeah. yeah. But you can't feel any of that here from the Chinese side. Right. So to re to have to like stand at a distance and see that, right. Like it's interesting to learn about how like in depth they can think about like this concept of self and balance and unity with like the universe and the heavens and et cetera. Right. Mm. But is not put in practice here. So you kind of like can only see it in a vacuum. Yeah. So it's very theoretical. Yeah. Now you were, you, I don't know if you, that's fine. I've that, talked about it yeah. before. So you lived in China. Yeah. So you probably can re- relate to it way more than I can in that sense, right? But I probably learned a lot more about it while I was living there. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, whereas I haven't. Yeah. Which is, I think, one of the most interesting things about our relationship. Is that, <laughs> like, whenever I met you, I was like, man, that's crazy. Because you lived there as an adult. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas, like, I haven't. But I, I while I was going through these kind of, like, I guess, like... um not struggles, but like this journey with my identity. Yeah. Right. I really envied you in that sense because I was like, man, I feel like that's that you have this experience within you that like mm. I would find very valuable. Now I could I could have gone back. I might I might still, right? right? I've always thought about it. Yeah. 
but it's one of the most interesting things about you, I think, hmm. that I've always found. Is yeah, that, yeah. Like, I, I, I actually learned a lot more about my culture through you. No way. Yeah. 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 Well, I lived there for five years, and uh, I guess at various times we've spoken Do, do people know together. what you did? Um, I don't know if I've ever really talked about it. It's it's one of the most interesting <laughs> things about you. <laughs> should we should we share that? I think so. Who right. would really know, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I I uh I started out well the story of my time in China, I guess, was like my I had a friend, Andrew, and I was the best man at his wedding, actually, a few years ago. Um, but his dad owned a business in Beijing and I was like, I took a gap year from university or I took a year off or something and I wasn't sure what I want to do. And somehow, I don't remember how we started talking about it, but Andrew was like, hey, my dad like sort of needs like a, like he, his dad's business did a business with Canada. And so like they wanted someone who could like make sure that the language was like uh, correct, like to edit the, cause the, like some of his workers were writing like Chinglish, I guess. So mm -hmm. they wanted someone to like proofread it to make sure that yeah, it the, sounded the, like really professional. There's a name for this. What is it though? Is it, is it the white, the white ape? No, the, you know how they white, Yeah. White monkey? Something. I, I, I don't, I don't think it was quite like that. Like I was doing something useful for the business. Right. Like a copywriting kind of. Like proofreading, I right. guess. An editor. Yeah. 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 But like, uh, there is an expression, I think it's what white, <sighs> I think like it's white, white monkey. Is it white monkey? I think so. And it's just really just that you're the face because like yeah. people see yeah, white yeah. people as yeah. way more trustworthy. Yeah. yeah. So like they'll bring like um if there's some like business event, they'll just like hire like a white guy to just basically like pretend to be like a board member of a company. Yeah. So it look so yeah. to make it like look more international and yeah. shit. Yeah. 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 But th this was not the case. I that would have disgusted me if I felt yeah. that way. Yeah. Um but this was not the, like, I was not trotted out ever. Oh, okay. I was just like in the office yeah. working with a bunch of Chinese colleagues. But this is not, this is not, this is not the. This is not the cool part. This is just right. how I, I ended up there. Yeah. But, but the cool part. Okay. That's the crazy thing <laughs> is that you are an antique dealer. Right. A Chinese, not yeah. only just an antique dealer, but like a high end antique dealer. <laughs> like some real, like hundreds of years old, like pottery porcelain <laughs> antique dealer. That's what I met you, and that's what you were telling yeah, me. I was yeah. like, "What the fuck?" That's how I ended. Like, that's how I ended up in China. And then while I was there, I met Eve. Uh, I shouldn't say her real name. I met. Well, I already said it. Well, anyway, that's not her real name, but she went by the English name Eva, and uh, she was had was like working in an antique shop, and somehow, I mean, I've always liked Indiana Jones, and I've always <laughs> liked history, and I like art, and I like like. Like I was interested in Chinese culture at that time. So it wasn't hard to feel for me that this was like really cool. And I like wanted to learn more. So I started going with her to all these like antique events and I'd like hang out in the shop where she worked. So the guy who the guy who owned where she worked was like a former um like a former CEO of like one of the Chinese oil companies. Mm. He was like he had like a lot of money and a lot of connections, like high ranking connections in Beijing. Um, and like as a second career in retirement, he like started his own, like, cause he loved antiques. He started like his own antique thing, uh, like his own antique business. And he took a shining to me. Like I came over there, I guess he didn't know many people from abroad. So like, it was cool for him to 
to have someone to hang out with, but he kind of, he kind of like took me under his wing a little bit and like introduced me to a lot of like really influential people. And like, it became clear that my utility was that these people had a lot of money, but they did have like no exposure to the outside, like outside of China. They didn't speak any English. They didn't like, they like few of them had ever traveled abroad. Like that was a different generation. That was like older than your parents' generation. That's like cultural revolution generation, right? They were like, you know, they were in their 70s or something 10 years ago, but they were like loaded and influential. And so um, I found myself falling into this niche of like helping these people buy antiques from abroad. So they became my customers and I got a commission from each time. And then also I met another guy who was sort of separate from that. He was like a different antique dealer. Um, but like the the first guy, um, we called him Ju Laosher, which means Jew teacher. And um, he he was like loaded and he... Maybe it's more accurate to say teacher Jew. He doesn't <laughs> teach you about Jews, but it's like, Jews, <laughs> you know, teacher Jew. Jew is his last name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But in Chinese, it comes first. Yeah. He doesn't teach you about Jews. <laughs> 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 uh yeah so i um but he didn't know a lot about antiques he just had a lot of money but i i i eventually made friends with this other guy called zhang zhang laosha which means teacher zhang teacher zhang yeah and he knew a lot about antiques so he became kind of my mentor and i would like go to his antique shop a lot and he would teach me like especially about porcelain antiques, how to recognize if it's real, how to recognize it's fake, how to recognize if it's like, um, if it's like been repaired. And some of the repairs are like really sneaky and you almost don't know. And you'll find out later and that could reduce the value by like, like a, like a perfect Qing dynasty vase with no repairs is worth a certain price point. But if it's like broken or if it was, it had a crack and it was covered up, or like a piece broke off and they fixed it. Like sometimes it's really hard to notice. You might not see, except to like a trained eye. But a trained eye will know and price that accordingly at like auction houses and stuff. So he taught me how to like look for things like that. And also like to understand antiques properly, you also have to understand like the historical context and yeah. like where the art was and like what the symbol is, like what the yeah. symbols mean. So all that like scratch that itch of where i just have to like learn a lot about chinese history so that's crazy and art right? art movements and stuff so that's that's super crazy because yeah. like china, I, what i knew about chinese culture and chinese people was that like so much of that is 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 woven into the curriculum of what you learn as a youngin yeah right like there's a lot of that that is, is like, I think, manifests in the, the way you speak the language and et cetera. Like, there's a lot of sayings that come from, I guess, like, they're like parables almost. Yeah. You probably know a couple of these sayings. I don't know if parables. Chung Yu, I think. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they kind of capture, like, stories from different eras. Mm. And it's like, all the art is very woven into the language and the and the culture and like the, just like that general consciousness. And I remember when I was talking to you, you had a lot of that stuff. It wasn't just like you knew the language. Yeah. You, you, you knew the culture. Right. And that blew my fucking mind <laughs> because I was like, and it makes sense that like you did all this stuff. So you got like a really intense yeah. crash course yeah. into Chinese yeah. culture. Yeah. Yeah. That was way beyond like modern Chinese culture. It right. It was just, it was like yeah. ancient Chinese yeah, culture. Yeah. 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 To, and it, it came about to just feel like I was good at my job, but I also like learning about, like I found it 
like it's a fascinating culture. Yeah. I like history. It's a long history. Yeah. It's like really recorded. Yeah. Like recorded well. So like it's, I enjoyed learning about it, but like, I just felt like it was partially like just because I wanted to get really good at what I was doing. Yeah. But it was also a joy to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, I think like one of the, that's, it's interesting because like talking to you, I've, I've always, I've recently been really thinking about reconnecting or not even reconnecting, but actually trying to do like, a, I think Jewish people, they go to Israel and they do a, like a like a it's trip. called birthright yeah yeah and i think the government sponsors it for every yeah. person of jewish descent it's hilarious my my two i have like uh two old friends they're like my neighbors growing up they're like twin girls um their dad was jewish south african and their mom was dutch and they were raised like christian right like all their lives yeah. they they do not identify as jewish yeah. like not even one iota yeah <laughs> um their dad wasn't really present yeah. and like they like they believed in like jesus they like re- went to church and shit yeah but they still got like a free birthright but th- did they feel more jewish once they did it i don't think so wow. i think they just okay. wanted i don't think both of them did it. i think yeah. just one but she just did it for like the, a trip trip yeah, yeah. But I want to do something like that for China. Yeah. I kind of want to go and just really kind of like, I don't want to say necessarily that like, and here's my thing about it, right? Like I've met a lot of Chinese people who've moved over and I really don't like their, like I, I feel like there's a culture clash there. Like mm-hmm. I think just the habits of modern Chinese culture, just I dislike a lot. Um, I think there's like a certain degree of, I've never known how to describe it. And I've tried to read a lot about it. Um, I think one, because like legalism hasn't really been part of the fiber of the culture. People are much more relationship based. Right? Oh yeah. There's a lot of, it's like, getting, I think it's changing though. I do agree. Yeah. I also think so. Like, of course with the, the, like the, the country becoming one of the global powers, right? It must. Yeah. But I think like, depending on the generation you speak to, yeah. there's still a lot of this, like, um, and I think a lot of cultures feel like American cultures are bad at this, which is like reading between the lines mm. and kind of like, just like, like people don't really necessarily like the words that they say aren't straight what they mean. Mm. You have to like interpret kind of like mm. what they're trying to yeah. say between the lines or yeah. like how they're saying it yeah. or the context and stuff. Right. Yeah. But that's way more important than the words they're saying. Right. Right. Um, I actually read a really interesting book called the culture map. I think it's by Aaron. Oh my God, I'm so bad with names. Aaron something. But it's essentially she works in in this uh, firm. She? She. Her name's Aaron? Aaron, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that's a, I did. I've never heard of a woman named Aaron. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's a great book because it breaks down. She she works in a firm in Paris yeah. that primarily consults with companies to help them figure out how to have international workers in a team yeah. work together most effectively interesting because there's so much cultural clash and like yeah. expectations that are different right yeah yeah and with asian cultures there's just like there's way more of this reading between the lines than any other culture mm. in fact i think in like china or india it's actually the worst in the sense that they'll never tell you that they can't deliver a project they'll always say that they can't oh that sounds like some that sounds like india to me yeah, yeah, yeah. They like just can never tell yeah. you that they can't yeah. do it. They'll yeah. just say yes, but they might not say yes outright. Right. They'll just be like, "Well, try, I'll try my best." Like, yes, I'll try my best. Well, I've 
like in the software field, I've dealt with some Indian teams where they're just like, they'll that. just, they won't say I'll try my best. They'll say like, yeah, we'll do it. No problem. Oh God. Yeah. And they're <laughs> just trying to get the sale, right? They're yeah. Trying to insure, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, now not, to not say even it. just get the sale. They'll just like, even if they're in, like I worked in a company for a little while where there was like a team in India, there's like a team in India and a team in Canada. Yeah. And like the team in India would just, they would always say they could do it. Yeah. But they'd right. miss the deadline. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that the Chinese people I meet have a similar like are like that, but they there's a, there's a, there's just like a similar cultural yeah I guess like clash there, right? Right. So that's what I mean when I say like with this birthright. Like I don't want the mo- I don't want to say that I don't want the modern Chinese cultural experience uh-huh. per se. Uh huh. But I do think that like a lot of the connection to the roots probably comes from understanding being Chinese. Yeah. And it's not necessarily being modern Chinese, but being like Chinese Chinese, right? Cuz I didn't the the modern culture extends from having grown up there, which I didn't do. So I can't I'm not going to I'm not going to suddenly redo that, right? Even though it might act as like kind of a magnifying lens for what it's like to grow up. Yeah. with that as your backdrop. Yeah. But I'm I'm still like a third generation culture or sorry, I think it's called third culture. I'm a third culture kid, right? Mm. Like I'm a mix of these two cultures. Mm. In my background, my parents are extremely Chinese, right? Mm. They never chose to integrate into like Canadian culture. Mm. Um, so like I'm I'm trying to figure out what it's like for me from that standpoint to understand my identity, and then from there hopefully continue building upon that. Um, because I think that's that's like such a core part of I think like what's define like who I am and what I'm trying to do, right? Mm. One big thing I did, um, <clears throat> and I'm gonna use my real name, <clears throat> but everybody who's Chinese in North America ends up picking like an anglicized name. Yeah. Especially when I, around the time I immigrated. Yeah. And I had one as well. Yeah. Um, but about five years ago, five, six years ago, I actually chose to switch back to my Chinese name. Mm. Right. Mm. Now I chose it as kind of like a political move, like a power play mm. in consulting because mm. like consulting and even just like working in general. Right. Very, a lot of it is about, um, it's about power. It's about the dynamic, right? And I've always noticed that somebody being like, oh man, how do I pronounce your name? Sorry for mispronouncing your name. <laughs> that switches the dynamic right away. And no then, way. yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I was very intentional why I decided no to do it. No way. Yeah, because I was That's like- That's some Machiavellian shit. Yeah, exactly. And the other <laughs> thing too is that like usually when people see a really Chinese name, yeah. the expectation is that you can't speak English well. They expect an accent. Right. But I have perfectly fluent English, Yeah. right? Yeah. So I would hit them with both of that and immediately would level the playing ground, right? <laughs> well, sorry, who are you leveling the playing ground with? Your, your consulting? You Consult uh, clients, like customers, clients. Okay. Or, or colleagues, okay. whatever it is. Yeah, right? yeah, it yeah. was just about evening the playing ground a little bit, yeah, right? yeah, especially because yeah. I was kind of new to the industry. Right. I just didn't want that like that presumptive kind of thing. And also there's yeah. this general kind of like cultural belief in the Americas mm-hmm. that like... Uh, Maybe not not as much now, right? But like you do feel it, right? Just that there's like Chinese people are seen as kind of like more passive, mm. right? A little bit more like usable, utilitarian, whatever, right? Yeah. And I was just like, oh, this is just this is a little tiny thing I can do <laughs> that kind of flips it on its head, and it's been grossly effective. <laughs> You'd be a, a surprised at how hilarious it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then like also, it's also funny whenever people tell me like why I do it. Or yeah. they'd be like, well, what was your old name, right? Yeah. And I, I always refer to it in the way that like a lot of like black culture, because I'm super into black culture, I take from it, mm. is I say that that was my slave name. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I still call you by that name. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, people throughout my life have called me different things. Yeah. Um, just based on like where they met, when they met me. That's true. Um, yeah, and that's fine. Yeah. Right? You yeah. Know? Or maybe you're one of my slave owners, you know? Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, shit. No, I, I can't. I can't even say that. <laughs> oh, well, if you're if you're good, you know, we can end the podcast later, early, and I'll I'll feed you. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, because like you introduced yourself as me to your anglicized name. Yeah, and then like you know we've been in different places for a while, and then I saw your social media change to your Chinese name. I was like, oh, okay. But I've always been like, what should I call you? And yeah. Like, just, you can keep calling me call whatever. whatever you want. Man. Yeah. You know, it's not, you know, there's no, uh, there's no political play there. Right? Yeah. Fair. Yeah. yeah. I think you actually, you for a little bit were calling me by my Chinese name. Yeah. A little bit. Just because I think it was because it reminded you a little bit of home. Like going, or, or I guess like you're Chinese. <laughs> it does feel at. a little bit like sometimes it does. It did for a while feel like kind of like a bit home to me. Yeah. And I'd go back to China because I, I mean, we didn't get into that, but I did start a language school there with a partner too later on from the antiques, which led me to sort of get like they'd bring me back every once in a while to like help with them opening a new school, and I just go there for like a couple months and like help them get situated. Well, that's probably also why we did the startup we did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was related to education. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I got a customer from there, but um, you know, it's just marketing in china like fuck what the fuck were we thinking oh my god <laughs> what were we thinking? you know you know what's crazy? i don't even know marketing in north america so this was the first time we mm. tried it mm. and that was eight years ago right yeah i tried it again recently three years ago mm. i did this venture with my professor mm. and we were we we designed this product mm. to exclusively be sold into china right yeah and can you tell that what the product was? It was a whiskey of some kind. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And bro, when I tell you that the market changed from when we did it, yeah. In the sense that like they all got super into like influencer marketing. Yeah. And navigating that, yeah, was absurd. <laughs> yeah. Like you would have to figure out what city you wanted to market into. Yeah. There were hundreds of influencers like yeah. sorry influencer marketing agencies oh really that represented millions of influencers like yeah. they were saying that like, i think one in seven people in china had tried to be influencers so you're looking at like 200 300 million <laughs> potential influencers right <laughs> and amongst those agencies you don't know which one's legit or not yeah right and you don't know amongst those influencers which is legit or not and right. it was just this like sequence of bribes and like again coupled with the fact that no one's really straight with you yeah it was the craziest thing. It's China hard. is insane. You can't yeah. do it like you can't you can't do it unless you're Chinese. Like you have yeah. you need someone on the ground who like really grew up there and understands yeah. it from the inside out. Yeah. To yeah. to partner with. And that was that was I guess my folly, right? Like, yeah. I guess that was our folly because like, we thought when well, I was like, oh well, Chris knows, and I'm Chinese. We're co yeah. combined. Yeah. We're like yeah. close enough, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought that too. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. were pretty naive. Yeah. 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 Hashtag entrepreneurs, right? Just a bunch of hashtag entrepreneurs. Yeah, but a lot of, I mean, the people who persist, like, I mean, the we'll get to this later, but like people often fail, but then yes. if they keep going and they persist, they learn from that yes, and then they course. can apply that to, of the course. Next, to the next one. But I think it's in that 
there's a degree more humility that would probably also yeah. help. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you got to fail. You got to fail. Not, not, I mean, some really exceptional people maybe like never failed and got it. Like Mark Zuckerberg maybe struck it right the first time. Yeah, well, he's get, kind of getting his ass cheeks clapped right now, isn't he? I mean, he's still like a multi-billionaire. Yeah. No, of course, this version of <laughs> clapping cheeks the version like that I would love to have. a couple billions left. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, oh, well, let's cut, 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 coming back to like the linear thing. Because we, mm-hmm. we, we were at university, right? Yeah. So you finished university, major in philosophy. What did you do after that? Uh, I actually, so I've, I've always been really into working out. And that kind of ties back to this identity thing. Was that like, I wanted to look like the, the, the attractive Western leads that you would see in movies and stuff, right? Yeah. Ironically for me, I think it was always Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know why. I just, some, it's just something about him being so muscular and all the women flocking to him that I was like, oh man, I want that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, plus being Asian, you're always seen as like kind of, I mean, we always had Bruce Lee, so we're kind of like, oh, that guy's jacked. He yeah. can beat up people. Yeah. Um, and Westerners like him. Yeah. Right? So it's like, oh, I got to be jacked. So yeah. I started working out when I was like 13, 14, right? Yeah. Started working out pretty intensely. Um, and then around the time of 2008 was when China... The Olympics happened in China, mm. and China destroyed men's weightlifting. Like, absolutely won gold. Like, no clapped shit. the I shit did not, out of it. I didn't know that. Yeah, Chinese weightlifting in the lower weight classes yeah. is, like, it's kind of like one, two, three. Gold, silver, bronze are oh, all no Chinese. Wow. Yeah. They're, like, world record holding, unbelievably strong. Like, cannot believe they're this crazy good. Yeah. And they're aesthetic. That's the crazy thing. They all look like bodybuilders. Yeah. Right? Um. So I saw that. I was like, oh, man, I got to get into that. So I started teaching myself how to Olympic lift. Mm. This is all tying to the fact that, like, essentially, I was doing Olympic lifting. I learned how to do it. Somebody at a gym saw me do it, and he was training athletes at the time. Um, And he approached me. He asked me, hey, do you want a job as my training assistant? What? Yeah. How old were you? Like, that was uh, during university? It was around 2008, 2009. So I must have been 2009, 2010, second year. I was, like, 19, 20. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and he was like, hey, I'll pay you, like, $35 an hour. What? Yeah, for me at the time, I was like, holy shit, that's crazy, right? Yeah. I only worked a job as a busboy before that. Yeah. Um, making minimum wage. So yeah. I was like, yeah, man, fuck yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, And he was from Hawaii, actually. So he kept going back and forth between Hawaii and here. Mm-hmm. And I proved myself valuable enough that, like, I would run the entire facility um, and the training programs when he wasn't here. Yeah. So we partnered, and, and I ended up uh, co-owning this training platform slash gym with him huh yeah we were, we were training like different athletes of different uh um uh, i guess like mainly hockey but also different sports yeah um and we'd also train um just like generally personal training of any kind yeah and i did so that you did that without bit. any like ex- like education like formal education no so i relied on him for that yeah, so he yeah. came up with all the programs because he was like formally trained had like all the crazy certifications and degrees yeah, and all yeah, that stuff yeah um, plus he did that in the in, in at a varsity level like he was the strength and conditioning coach for a university yeah like football like all that stuff in hawaii yeah um whereas i was just like i he he was born with this weird kind of like genetic issue in his wrists where the, the bones were fused together so he couldn't do these olympic lifts huh so that's how i ended up doing it i he saw me and he's like hey can you demonstrate for me, like, as my training assistant? But also, like, you know, run some of these drills, whatever, right? Right. Um, so I did that for maybe, like, three years, actually. Mm. Um, and that's how I ended up, like, 
doing that for a long time, mm. right? The money was good. It felt very interesting because I love working out at the time, right? Mm. Although working that job, I ha- ended up hating it. <laughs> like, um, but I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And doing that um, is probably what stopped me from pursuing law. Yeah. Because I mentioned, as I mentioned, I was doing philosophy, political science to do law, right? Yeah. yeah. And I had actually spoken to a couple corporate lawyers mm. about like their experience being a lawyer. Mm. And they were like, man, if you have anything else, like try that first before you go to <laughs> law. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, I, I, they're like the money is great. This sucks. But this sucks. <laughs> so I was like, oh man, okay, I'm not going to do that then. Yeah. Um, I was like, at the very least, or I was like, let me, let me see how far I can take this gym thing, right? Yeah. But the problem was because I was the one demonstrating all these Olympic lifting exercises, you can't yeah. do that every day, right? Yeah. Like it's really damaging on your like neuro, neuro nervous system and your like muscular structure and whatever. Mm. So I started to develop like uh, sciatica, which is this like, um, essentially you have this nerve that runs through your ass and your leg called your sciatic nerve and you mm. build up scar tissue that like presses down on it. Mm. So I could not sit for a long time. Like my leg would go numb, my ass would set on fire, like it was crazy. Yeah. And I was like, man, I'm 23. I can't, I can't, I can't have this already. Yeah. So I was like, I got to get out of this. Yeah. Um, and at the time, I actually ha- happened to uh, work with one of my friends to build a website for uh, my gym. And I was like, kind of interested at that point. Yeah. Plus the fact that I was into logical argumentation and structures already in my philosophy degree. Yeah. I just happened to like meet this guy at my ex-girlfriend's party who was the CEO of the boot camp that we did. Okay. And that's how, and he introduced it to me. And I was like, okay, I mean, I've got this sciatica issue. I kind of want to get out of this. I need something else. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should try this. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in software engineering. Huh. Yeah. That's how I ended up there. And that's where we met. That's where we met. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's funny. Like um, a lot of people in the industry think of boot camp grads as like the chafe or something like it it's they don't have the best reputation but um you've done very well for yourself in the industry like you've been quite successful and you're one of like you're a very strong programmer i believe yeah i do i think so i think that like it depends right like if you take the average probably yeah probably because the problem with boot camps is that the boot camp is acting as a marketing piece yeah. for anybody who can pay, yeah. right? Like there's no need, there's no pass fail with a boot camp. That's why like from a traditional uh, computer science based uh, software engineering perspective, yeah. Yeah. like you just don't know yeah. half the, like or sorry, any of the things we learned in university, right? Yeah. And they're more so less targeting like, you to become a software engineer, they're targeting for you to be a web developer. They're teaching you how to learn front-end web development most of the time, right? And front-end web development has almost zero to do with what you learn in university. Yeah. So like you can be a front-end web developer, right? Much of the industry's boom Mm -hmm. is because front-end web development became what it is through the, the, I guess, the creation of these frameworks and then Web 2.0 kind of kicking off, right? Yeah. Which is just this idea that you have very... You have very powerful browsers now because computers got stronger, right? Um, mm. These browsers can now handle much more um, computationally heavy front ends, like or, or websites necessarily, without having to constantly make requests back to some kind of 
server. Mm. And so because of without that lag, now what's happening is you can actually get a lot more interaction on the website with the user. Mm. And through that, you can collect a lot more data. And now we're in the era of data farming and using that data to like drive user decisions to make better business decisions. Mm. So that from a business like kind of foundation allowed for the creation of a lot more of these front end jobs, which is why like people without a degree can kind of learn how to write like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, mm. use these frameworks without a comp sci degree, meaning mm. you'd understand like underlying the guts of like what how it all works mm. to, to that degree, to that low of a level. Yeah. That you can work in this industry. Yeah. I mean, I guess you don't really need to understand how the computer all works because your whole um, work profile is just in the browser. Yeah. And it's all abstract away from you, right? Yeah. It's designed to be easier to use, right? For yeah. scale, for scalability yeah. and that reason. But I do agree. I do think that like a lot, uh, if you took the average of the grads, mm. most of these people aren't going to make it yeah. in the industry, despite what the boot camps tell you. We, yeah. did, we were having this conversation yeah. the other day yeah. that like, yeah. they, they promised like, absurd like 95 percent of our students end up with jobs right but it's yeah. like not really yeah you know what is it? like a free internship i think they're like oh check mark right and it's yeah. like oh maybe we can fluff these numbers a little bit right yeah yeah no one's holding them accountable how do you know that yeah unless you're not it right <laughs> yeah yeah but in reality i think it's closer to like 20 percent, maybe actually really? make it into the industry yeah like truly into the industry yeah like and i mean like actually succeed in the industry yeah. i mean just like working some like whatever job right yeah, like yeah, you can yeah. Like you can progress enough to be like a competent mm -hmm. software engineer. I mm -hmm. think it's maybe closer to like 10, 20 percent. Yeah, that that would make sense. Um, but I've always found it like a little rewarding personally when I'm on a team with like some comp side people and I like I'm helping them. Yeah. But yeah. I, I feel like nice. But Chris, you are always going to make it. Mr. Cat. You're oh, sorry. We'll bleep it yeah, out. We'll cut that out. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mr. Cat, though. Yeah. You are always going to make it, right? You've already proven yourself to be competent in other fields. Yeah. And of the things you've done. Mm. So this one, like, as long as you had the, I think, like, the, like, your mind was not averse mm. to, I think, like, things that were, like, mathematics or whatever. You know, you it was this. hard at first. I burnt myself out retraining my brain to think that way yeah because like i was coming from like antiques yeah and like a language school and shit like yeah i i had i had dabbled a little bit in programming my brother had learned a little bit in his cognitive psychology program yeah um so i like dabbled a little bit when i was in china just with like i played with some python online mm. course or something like that um but we we're in the program like i remember like working there until nine o'clock, like after the lessons, like 9 p.m. to like do the homework and like figure it out. And I just, it was like a hard adjustment for my brain initially. I think it's like that for everyone, like most people. Yeah. I think most people have to go through. I think there's a, there's a saying in the industry that if you're not willing to cross that 10,000 hour valley, mm. don't even bother, mm. right? And that mm. valley is like rewiring your brain to think mm. in that way. Mm. I think we hold these like, I guess like these genius unicorn developers in this regard. Mm. And they seem to be like the profile of what we think all engineers should be. Mm. When in reality, they're only like five, 10% of the working force, right? Mm. There's maybe in any company, two or three of them, depending mm. on the size, mm. right? Like they represent maybe 1% of your actual yeah. like working force. Most people are like us, just at different grades of, you mm. know, seniority mm. right in terms of the experience but most people don't aren't like right away they're like oh i know how computers work i understand how they speak yeah, you yeah. know you do have those people that are like speaking to computers is easier than speaking to people 
Yeah. But most people aren't like that, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that like, I mean, I had a very similar experience too. We, I was right there with you. We were working mm. till nine every day. Yeah. <laughs> trying to understand how all this stuff worked. Right? Yeah. 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 So I do think like burnout is a real thing because mm. like it's hard, right? It's a really mm. hard industry. It's a hard skill. It's mm. one of the few jobs which pay well based on your based on like whether or not you're good or not it's like yeah. is, it, is it you know it's very defined yeah it's a it is a kind of a meritocracy i guess yes yeah. yes to a to a, to a to large a degree, degree. Yeah. yeah 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 um so just coming back to that linear progression so we had done the boot camp we did that little tried that little startup-y thing that didn't really work out um Talk about your kind of career in in the industry and like what brought you to, to where you are today. Um, so my, I think my career is kind of a typical. Um, I worked at a very small startup, mm. right? It was my very first job. Mm. I was super glad to get it, honestly, and it was through a friend of a friend who kind of knew the owner. Mm. Um, I wasn't really great at the initial interview, but I kind of just kept knocking on the door. I was like persistent because I was like, hey, you're a small business, right? Like I'm not How, the best how many engineer. people were? When I joined, it was like seven people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember being like, listen, I might not be the best engineer because I just got a boot camp. Yeah. I don't really know a lot, but yeah. I, I've, I've been a business owner because mm-hmm. I'd done the gym thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, so I, I can at least offer you the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm going to outwork everybody else and yeah. I understand how the business works, yeah. right? And I'm going to try and figure out how to help you in your business. Yeah. But in the meantime, just give me a shot, right? Yeah. So they hired, I was like, I'm even going to work for free. Mm. I was like, I'll totally work for free. I just need the experience. Mm. So they actually brought me on for as a free intern first. No way. Yeah. Mm. And I worked for free, but I was like, I was like putting in like 12, 14 hour days for like, uh, and they saw that, right? They saw how hard I was trying to work, and they felt like I was a smart guy in the sense that, like, I really tried to understand their business and stuff, like, right away, mm. not just be like here and trying to like write some code and stuff. Yeah. And within like a week and a half, they offered me uh, a part-time role, mm. and then a week after that, they offered me full-time. Mm. So in like two and a half weeks, they went from being a free intern to be them realizing, oh, this guy like knows his shit. Like at the very least, not in terms of coding, mm. but just like he's a smart guy. He's like he's there's, there's an asset here, right? Yeah. Um, and those are like their words exactly to me as to why they hired me. Mm. Um, so since then, I think like I learned a lot about like that kind of like broadened my whole perspective on being an engineer. Mm. And I've kind of be like reinforcing that lesson throughout every role I've done, mm. which is that like, it's not just about the engineering. Like a hundred percent, you got to be good. You got to be competent. You got to know. Right. And I was always working on being better because it was all my weak points. So I was always trying to improve on it. Mm. But I also knew that I had a lot of experiences and a lot of um, other skills that were useful because at the end of the day, software companies, it's a very business-driven industry, almost more than like more than other industries in a lot of ways because it's the red-hot thing right now that everyone's investing in. Mm. So the better you are at being able to understand and navigate how this business can properly execute from a business standpoint – the more effective this business is at surviving because there's so many startups, mm. so many companies trying to make it. Mm. And like, if you forget fundamentals, if you get lost in the sauce or you just rely on outside capital to be the reason why your business is successful, right? Like there's money being thrown around by investment firms, VCs, maybe a little less now due to the recession that just happened and people kind of like checking themselves a little bit more. Mm. But like, that era did not make sense of like the amount of funding companies would get with like legitimately almost like nonsensical like lack of 
user acquisition or like usage, hmm. right? Like these companies had not proven their true value. It was always investing in the potential maybe of what this could be, right? Maybe the market seemed interesting that you were going after. Maybe your pitch seemed interesting. Maybe the competitor space seemed interesting. And this was a way to, in there's so many reasons as to why they would invest in a business that had almost no financial data that would prove that they were like a good business that if you were to look at it at any other more mature industry, mm. right? So like that, that really helped me kind of be like, oh, okay, I at least understand business fundamentals. Let me try and apply that into like my role as an engineer, right? And how I would always reflect that would I would always ask like, how is what I'm building or how is what we're building and how we're building it how is that helping the business in the long run, mm. right? Or even in the short term, like let's yeah. let's just align on that first, right? And that always kind of like uh, helped us or helped me like prove my value as an engineer in that sense as being somebody that always thought about the bottom line and the business as a whole collective whole. Mm. And my career reflected that. So after I did this job for about a year and a half, I went to join one of the best consultancies in North America at the time for front-end web development. Um, and we were like a digital transformation agency. We were mainly focused on helping enterprise customers who are in non-technical fields. So like not tech-first enterprises, so like mm. not a Google, not an Amazon, any of those. Yeah. Maybe like telecommunication giant, maybe a bank, maybe like a pharmaceutical company or an airline or whatever, these massive enterprises break into the technical digital age, mm. especially from a front-end perspective. Mm. And it was there that I met some of the most brilliant engineers I've ever met. They were super competent technically and they were also super competent from a business standpoint they were just good at almost everything it was like super crazy mm. how good they were at everything mm. um at least a lot of them were a lot of them are my lifelong friends now and they serve as a lot of inspiration for me a lot of guidance for me in terms of like how to navigate the industry um but like it was through that company that i understood that like I, it really drove home that concept that like the business is m almost more important than the engineering. The engineering serves a means for the business. The engineering for engineering's sake is a fucking pitfall. And anyone coming into this industry trying to be an engineer needs to avoid that pitfall like the plague. In our industry, you are, especially if you come from a non-technical background, right? Like without a comp sci degree or an engineering degree, you are riddled with this fear that you're not good enough, right? This imposter syndrome. So as a result, you seem to really hedge yourself and your identity onto your competency as a software engineer. But that is a pitfall because if you get locked into that trying to chase the perfect solution, which does not exist, you cannot account for the change in the market, the change in the product, or the change in the actual technical scope of the problems because you can't control the whole picture, you will be wasting your time constantly. And I think that as a result, people get stuck as an intermediate for a really long time. They're not true seniors for that reason because they cannot figure out where they need to cut corners and what corners to cut and why. Because like there's business deadlines, there's like needs, there's demands, there's like way more of the bigger picture to see. Mm. So I think that was the big thing that I really understood working at this consultancy, right? And I really hammered it home. Mm. And then after that, um, I worked at the consultancy that was consulting out of uh, Amsterdam mm -hmm. in Europe. When I was doing that, um, I happened to have the opportunity to uh, build a course, um, online e-learning, uh, 
when it came to web development. And I took that chance. What gave you that idea to do that? So at the time, um, when I was consulting, I was actually having some visa problems because the consultancy I was working for, they were kind of like fumbling my visa a little bit because uh, there was a... There was just somebody in HR that was like really bad at her job and she just like fumbled the bag for me. Um, but also on top of that, I think they were just trying to figure out what they were doing, like how to do it. So that happened and I ended up um, having to quit my job at this consultancy. And I had six months left before my partner wanted to uh, move to San Francisco for a job, right? So I was like, well, I've got six months on my hands. I'm making no money. I've got to live off my savings. And we're traveling a lot. i got to do something, right? Hmm. So I thought about actually going back to my old um, fitness uh, ideologies or, or my fitness past. Because at the time when I was in Amsterdam, uh, it was pretty hard to make friends. Um, so I ended up getting like really into working out again, right? Hmm. Um, to the point where I was able to hit like some really big strength goals. Like I was benching 315 at a body weight of like 166 pounds, which is like really good for me. Mm. So I was like, oh, you know what? Let me make a course um, because I was a trainer before, right? Let me make a course on like how to lose weight and like build strength and build muscle and like a really efficient framework that I had, right? Yeah. So I was I was already thinking about like chewing on doing that when I got offered the opportunity to build a course through uh, an ex-colleague at this consultancy. Mm. And, I mean, he asked me if I wanted to do it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, let me try it. I'll take a chance on it. And that's how I built my first course. Hmm. And then since then, I've built a second course. Did he give you any guidance on how to go about doing that? Or did you do um, it? Did you just figure it all out he, yourself? He had some ideas. Like, he, yeah. he definitely gave me some some structure. Like, yeah. he was like, from he's like, from my learnings, like, students, like, um, because the, the course is targeted towards people that know a little bit of JavaScript mm. or don't really know it much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was like, well, first, like maybe make like an intro application, mm. like a really simple, you know, like so something like a to-do list or whatever. Right. Mm. And then after that, the main benefit of like the main selling point is that like all tutorials teach you how to do like this basic ass like to do list whatever, right? Yeah. But that's not real. That's yeah. not like what actually you do in a in a business. No one builds those in a real business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He's like, figure out if you want to build something more robust, right? Mm. Originally, maybe it was like he was like you could build a couple projects. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna build a really big project that is really common in the industry, which is e-commerce, hmm. right? So I was like, we'll build an e-commerce website, and I'll show you how to interact with all of the tools, which like. Because because through an e-commerce website, there's enough problems that maybe don't overlap with like a lot of different apps you'll build, mm. but the tools and the ways that you have to break down the problem are all existent in an e-commerce app. Mm. So let's do that. And and by doing that, you'll learn all of the different technologies you'll need to know, all the patterns, all the exposure that will at least make you, ideally, if you knew everything that like I taught you, you could be a competent intermediate developer, Right. Now, maybe you wouldn't be able to memorize and understand it all, right? Let's not even say memorize, but like actually understand everything that you're doing. But at the very least, you get enough exposure that like you're definitely good enough as a junior, mm. right? Mm. And you always have the course to like refer back to to help you answer some of these questions of what you're doing at work and why. Yeah. And that was the way I approached it. And that seemed very successful, mm. right? Um, and that was how I broke into like being an online teacher, mm. uh, doing these courses. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. 
And those courses turned out to be a great success for you. Yeah. 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 I'm very lucky in that sense. They've given me a lot of passive income and financial freedom. Do you think that going forward, um, like right now, you're taking a break from work, you quit your job, you're traveling. Do you feel that um, when you're done your travels, do you think you'd like look for a full-time job or do you think you would spend more time just doing more of these courses? So in my travels, I do plan to do two more courses. Um, because I think like it's always good to have something to work on mm. on your own schedule, right? To some degree. Yeah. yeah. Um, as long as you feel strongly about this topic that you're going to teach. Yeah. I think that for me, what I want to do with um, afterwards, it's really up in the air because I'm at a crossroads right now. The last job I held, that was the lead of the team. Um, and I do think that I'm at this point where I'm either going down that staff direction as a, I guess like staff being the high, like near the highest peak of being an actual software engineer, Mm. or I go towards management or maybe like a slight lateral ladder change into something that's more like either project management or some type of interface layer between like non-technical stakeholders, external stakeholders, or just different organizations from engineering. And like, that's what I go towards. Mm. I still haven't fully figured that out yet, which I'm actually hoping I'll get a better idea of through this uh, vision quest I'm going on, which is kind of the name I'm giving this whole like uh, post-work, or I guess like post-quitting journey I'm about to take. is just to have a better understanding of like who I am, what I want to do, Etc. Yeah. So you don't have the answer right now, but you think maybe the answer will come to you. I think so. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the vision quest journey? Yeah. Yeah. So what are you going to be doing on your vision quest journey? So I came to visit you. Yeah. Right. In this mountain town. Yeah. Because I'm going to partake in like a ayahuasca ceremony. Yeah. Ayahuasca being this like Peruvian shamanistic ritual where you consume this like plant medicine that helps you intrinsically look within and help you better understand yourself Mm -hmm. right at a very glossed over high level yeah um and then after that i'm kind of just gonna travel the world right just like pack two backpacks and just see where life takes me yeah and through that i'm hoping to just get a better understanding myself um a lot of people i admire throughout history and antiquity did that Right, it was kind of like a pilgrimage or just like traveling the world, right? Mm. Like um, it's like that kind of, not like a wandering warrior per se, but just like through your travels and meeting and interacting with different cultures, you get a better understanding of yourself, right? Because you're put into these different challenges. Um, And that's really kind of my perspective. One of the people I really look up to is Che Guevara. And I remember reading the Motorcycle Diaries and then watching the documentary, not the documentary, but the film made after, based on it afterwards. Mm. Um, He was like, he was a medical student who was like 23 and him and his friend got on this old motorcycle and they wanted to drive down like 17,000 kilometers or was it 7,000 kilometers? I don't remember. But just down Latin America and along the way they were going to hit towns, chase skirts, bang girls. Like that was their whole thing, right? Mm. But along the way he sees all the kind of suffering that Latin America was going through um, due to the influx of capitalism and it really like moved him and compelled him. And then from that point on he 
went on to become like one of the most iconic revolutionaries who, you know, despite what you might believe about his philosophies and ideologies, whatever, right? But he laid his life down for something he believed in. And it's mm. this calling to a greater purpose that I was always really inspired by, mm. right? Um, and I think that's what I really want my journey to do for me. Now, does it have to be as grandiose as like, I'm going to go liberate Bolivia or something. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, of course not. Right. But I, I think there's a degree of like self reflection and understanding that I'm really hoping to get through this. Right. Maybe like just have a better, I'm trying to find conviction in my life, more yeah, conviction. Yeah. I, I want, I want to feel really impassioned and I want to feel, uh, um, did you feel a little bit like the career ladder climbing that wasn't giving you the fulfillment you were looking for? I think so to a degree. Like I, I, I definitely wanted to climb the ladder to prove to myself I was good enough, right? We had talked about that, that like um, in this industry, right? Coming in from a non-technical background, you, you're constantly like, am I good enough to stand with these people, right? Especially this profile we're talking about, like this unicorn developer, yeah. right? But you reach a point where you're like, oh, I am pretty good. Like I've, I've, I've proven myself enough, right? Mm. The money, the the title, the the companies, the peers, everyone's like telling you you're good. Yeah. If that's truly what you want, then you keep going. Mm. But unfortunately for me, I hit this point where I was like, I do still value it to a degree. Don't get me wrong, right? Because I'm not like throwing it all away, being like, this is not my life. Yeah. But there was something much deeper intrinsically that I was like, oh man, like I'm, 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 I'm still, I'm miserable with something. I'm, I'm unhappy about something. Something's not right. Yeah. And that's what I figured. I was like, oh, I need to better understand that. I need to start figuring it out. And I still worked for like a year and a half, even having those, despite having those feelings. Maybe even four years, actually. It's, it kind of started a little bit where I was just questioning. I was like, do I want to keep doing this? Like, mm. Or what, if I do, like why, right? Mm. I didn't just want to keep going along for for no reason. I want I wanted to feel... Or just for the money. Exactly, or just for the money. I wanted to feel like a, a, a affinity for it, right? Yeah. Now, a lot of my drive for the money, I'm not going to lie, was because I always knew I had to take care of my mom. But I think like with these courses and the passive income and everything, I was like, oh, I can do that now. Mm. But then after that, I was like, I suddenly lost this massive goal in my life, right? Like I had focused on that for 31 years. I was like, let me find a way to take care of my mom with with, with finances. Yeah. And suddenly now that I can and that pressure's gone, uh-huh. I'm purely left by my, to my own devices. Anything more that I make or anything else that I do is is got to be for, for me now. Yeah. And I realized that I had I had never developed the language internally to figure that out. I was always good at solving everyone else's problems, whether it be through my job, whether it be through my relationship, especially through relationships. I was really good at like, putting other people first, like my partner and their problems, and then making those my problems and figuring them out. Mm. But I was never good at, one, being able to look within and asking, hey, what what what, what I want, right? That was step one. I didn't even do that. Mm. And the step two was like, how do I actually solve my own problems? Right, I, and that's kind of this whole vision quest journey for me is about figuring that out. Step one and step two, right? And then hopefully through that, I'll have a much more robust and meaningful life. Mm. Because I, I feel like up until this point, like I can reflect on it, be like, oh yeah, that would be a meaningful life, and that feels meaningful, like in in the sense of like if I compare it to how society views me. Yeah. But internally, how meaningful is it? I don't know. I can't say for certain. Something's definitely missing. Hmm. So what do you, so your vision quest, is that just the ayahuasca retreat that you're about to partake in? Or is it other, are there be, will there be other subsequent um, experiences? 
Yeah, I think there's like I'm 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 planning. I mean, even having been here and having spoken to you and having just spoken to a lot of the people in this place that are further along in that, I guess like that journey or mm. etc. Yeah, there's definitely I I've always believed the reason why I even decided to kick this off this way is that like throughout history a lot of these like answers to like who am I like how do I solve this like internal longing for meaning whatever right. Mm. The solutions have been spoken about. Mm. It's all out there. Almost yeah. everything is out there for almost every problem in our lives, right? Yeah. You just have to be willing to try it. And yeah. like everyone's always said, you know, meditation retreats, yoga retreats, uh, travel the world, take yourself out of your environment, challenge yourself in different ways, right? Like change your perspective, meet new people. All those things have been spoken about. So I was like, oh, if that's what it is, then let me do that, mm. right? So I was like, let me do that. That's what I'm going to do then, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, throughout the last year, I did a lot of microdosing of mushrooms, right? Through MindLift, which is a phenomenal company. Our sponsor today, very good plug. I mean, we'll, we'll bleep that. Very good plug, uh, Mr. Salamander. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I've been, and they helped me get through so many of these breakthroughs this year was just like making, a deeper understanding of myself to get to this point, right? Um, what got, what really, what spurred me into this position was that I had actually been living in San Francisco, as I mentioned, right? Uh, I guess circling back a little bit. Yeah. Um, after I left Amsterdam, I went to San Francisco and I started uh, doing the interview preparation for the fan companies, which is like a category of top tech enterprises. Fang F-A-A-N-G stands for Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, Netflix, Google. Yeah. And they cha they changed it now because uh, like Facebook is now Meta, Google is now Alphabet, and Netflix isn't on the list. I think it's been replaced by yeah. Microsoft. Yeah. Either way, it's just this top category yeah, yeah, of tech companies, yeah. right? Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they have a very specific interview structure that requires a baseline understanding of everything you learn in computer science. And then on top of that, it's like in these really complicated, like kind of like puzzles, mm. like almost like coding challenges that mm. are very dissimilar to what you do in your day-to-day, -day, uh, particularly, especially as a front-end engineer. Yeah. Um, now the interviews have shifted a little bit more now, like to some degree, I don't wanna say they're completely the same, but at the time when I was doing them, they were very driven in this way, this like elite code kind of context. Yeah. Um, so I prepped for like a year and a half, right? And I did a bunch of these interviews. I got a bunch of job offers. But at the time, this was during Donald Trump's America. Mm. And he disallowed anybody who did not have a comp sci or an engineering degree to get a visa to work in the US mm. for uh, these roles. Yeah. And I, of course, have a philosophy degree. Yeah. So I had like burned myself out doing all this stuff. Mm. Um, my whole goal was really just, I wanted to stay with my partner, right? She was like the love of my life. Um, but I could not get the degree and she having couldn't been, get the, or sorry, I couldn't get the visa. The visa. The yeah. visa. Is it like a green, is it called a green card or something? No, it's a TN visa. Okay. The green card is what you apply for after. Okay. And then the green card is, I, I feel like the green card is kind of like a permanent resident. Right. Equivalent in okay. Canada. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't get through. Um, and she didn't want to leave the US. Um, she had also been like looking for a place to stay her whole life, right? Like a country that meant something to her. And she really liked her life in the US, right? And she really liked, um, you know, her job it was very fulfilling. Did right? you like living there? 
it was pretty nice. California's got a lot of pros. I mean, a lot of just wealth disparity, which I really didn't like. But like, you know, I, I still liked I liked the energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came back to Toronto having never thought I'd come back to Toronto, right? Uh, just because me and my partner believed that we would never go back. She hated Toronto. And I kind of adopted a lot of that mindset myself. Huh. Um, so I came back to Toronto I lost the love of my life. I lost this dream job I'd been thinking about for like eight years, right? Kind yeah. of come so fucking close. Yeah. Just to have it like beaten out by me by some like technicality, right? Yeah. That I was outside of my control. Yeah. Um, and I was like really depressed, right? Yeah. So I started trying to figure out my life, put my life together. Microdosing really helped. It really gave me a lot of breakthroughs, like a lot of reflection upon like all these things that I've talked about throughout this podcast, right? Mm. About my past, about my upbringing and how those have impacted me being the person that I am, how I'm not good at focusing on myself because like from a young age, I was just kind of like given this desire to one, take care of somebody else, which is my mother. And then two, try and get approval from this person who just like, who is my dad, just like who's just so absent in my life, right? Mm. Um. And it was those two things that kind of really shaped who I am up to this point. But through the microdosing, I realized that. And I feel like I just kind of like re-grabbed control of my life and just like a really much deeper understanding of myself. And, it, and I mean, I'm also very blessed to have a lot of friends and a lot of very caring people in my life in Toronto, right? Um, I got a good job where I was like, you know, really valued. Um, and I kind of just reshaped me and helped me better understand myself gave me better perspective and it turned what was the worst year of my life into the absolute best year of my life Hmm. and now i'm kicking off this big vision quest this big new adventure right as a result of it and it just feels like everything is where it should have been right um i just had to i felt like it was just a lot of overcoming a lot of stuff to get to this point yeah yeah i mean i i can relate to that i've gone through similar journeys and ultimately those really hard years um the struggle that you go through will lead to lessons that will, I think, benefit you in a in a richer way going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's necessary. Yeah. Can't have pain without sorrow, or sorry, can't have pleasure without pain. Yeah, mm, or happiness without sorrow. So, on your vision quest, where do you intend to go? Um. So I haven't bought the tickets to fly to any of these countries in mind already, right? But Mm. my main goal right now is I want to go to, I think I'm going to start in Bali. And then from Bali, I'm going to probably explore a lot of Southeast Asia. I really just want to hit every major surf and yoga town. (laughs) Right. I feel like for me, as I mentioned before, right? Like a lot of people from those communities seem to have like done a lot of that soul searching or just like more introspective part of it. Mm. Right. Now, of course there's the surfer bra and all that stuff. Right. And I, I don't want to get too mixed up in that, but like, I do think that there is uh, maybe like a spiritual connection through that experience to some degree if taken seriously, which I want to do. I felt, I mean, I'm not an expert surfer. I got into it last year, maybe because we we're very similar and I had the same idea. Um, my plan was to do the same thing, but then COVID happened. So I kind of stuck to my own country, but we actually have surprisingly some def- decent surfing in Canada. So I went to a, a well-known spot and um, it is very meditative surfing. Yeah. You feel like so peaceful and you're yeah. just there waiting for a wave. 
yeah. on your board. Yeah. You just sort of feel at one with like your surroundings. That's what I want, right? Yeah. And that's what that, what you were describing to me, man. I'm getting chills thinking about that because I want that. So yeah. I think too, the other thing is that like I have a fear of the ocean. I have thalassophobia, which is like fear of the deep ocean. I'm hoping to work through that. Right, because yeah. I don't think I should be dictated by that fear. Right, lots of people surf. I'm not like you know trying to venture into the, you know, I'm trying to walk through lava or something. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I do think that there's a degree where I, I want to get over that too. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. The thalassophobia. I think it's yeah. a fear of the unknown more than anything. Probably yeah. watch too many like monster films. Okay, you know, and yeah. I look at the deep ocean and I just but are you like what's the worst that like what's the worst thing that would be down there that you'd be afraid of honestly sea monsters that's the crazy really like (laughs) Cthulhu you know what I mean like it's like giant tentacled beast just like swallowing me whole like something that it doesn't probably it doesn't exist there's no proof of it ever existing exactly but you just you can't see it so there's this ominous mystery down there yes and that's where the fear comes from it's not even sharks you know i mean i've never thought about that been like oh my god there's a shark down there no it's like what kind of monstrous unknown serpent leviathan is down there have you heard of the blip yeah yeah bro i know all of them <laughs> right like i, I track those because i'm like that's what it is there's like this there's there's this there was this i remember there was this article written about the bloop how like or bloop eh? yeah the bloop how okay. how uh how the, based on the coordinates if you if you were to like look at like where the origin point estimation is mm. it's where in hp lovecraft's the call of cthulhu no they shit. also estimate oh, cthulhu to be dwelling what so um I think our listeners might not know. Can you explain what the bloop is? So the Some bloop, people won't know what, what that means. So the bloop was this like sound that was recorded by a series of underwater microphones. Yeah. And it's this monstrous noise that they believe is organic in nature. Yeah. Right? Given the when they look at the sound wave pattern. Yeah. But it seems to be one to two thousand times the size of than the than that of a blue whale oh, given, shit. given the sound wave sounds. Oh, that's right? fucked up. So it's this enormous, seemingly biological entity, right? Yeah. Now there's a lot of theories that it's maybe like shifting tectonic plates yeah. or something, right? But yeah. then they're like, well, but why does it seem organic in in its wave pattern, right? right. If we were to map it. Yeah. So if there's something crazy slumbering down there, right? That's what I'm afraid of. That's what I'm <laughs> shitting myself about. <laughs> And it just singled you out as its like first foray. Exactly. To the surface I don't even think it's sur- I don't even think it, it's it's I, I just don't want to be that statistical. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm I'm just trying to reduce the chances that I'm even that point zero 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 one percent that when sure. it awakens, yeah, I happen to be somewhere near the water. And if it eats you, like you probably wouldn't just eat and you'd like your soul would be taken to some sort of monstrous spirit world. Exactly. And right. you'd like or tortured de- for eternity. Yeah. And I never you'd, like think- eat eat your soul or something. So how do I say I don't even think that far. No. I just think about seeing it and me shitting my pants. Okay. <laughs> right? I might just bite my tongue off the moment that happens. I always joke that if I follow the boat, I'm in the middle of the ocean, I'm gonna bite my tongue off like i'm just gonna die oh i would rather God. i would rather die than go through the anxiety of what that like experience is like <laughs> oh man okay well i hope your ayahuasca journey helps with that yeah I, yeah maybe i haven't i have a similar fear of flying like a real irrational phobia that might have come as a result of um being in really severe turbulence one time when i was flying into vietnam we threw, flew through a storm and we plummeted for a bit and I was like very terrified. It might have come or been exasperated by that experience. But uh, I haven't actually 
flown since my last ayahuasca retreat. And and I mm. and I and I um which was last year. And, and I'm doing the same one, right? Uh you're doing it with the same people. Yeah. yeah. In the same place. And this well, yeah, I guess you could say yeah. it's the same. You refer one. To me. Because I were, okay, yeah, <laughs> yes, all those things are true. Yes, you'll be doing it there too. Um, but one of the things I dealt with was a fear of mortality. Mm. And in the retreat, I remember thinking like, it's okay if I died right now. Like I, I've lived a really full life and I've, I've had like, I've cultivated like incredible relationships and uh, like it would be okay. Yeah. Like I could accept that. That was my, um, that was my like feeling at that time. So I don't know. We'll see how I feel with my next flight, which is like, next month. Yeah. If, I, if I'll feel better about that. Interestingly, when you mentioned that, I don't think mine is a fear of mortality. I yeah. think mine is a fear of adrenaline. Huh. Because I think, I imagine if I'm sitting out there and or I Or like a down, lack of control or something. I don't know if it's a lack of control. Yeah. But like if I look down, I see this giant looming face thing yeah. looking at me right yeah you get a spike of fear I'm, I'm, my heart is increasing while i'm thinking about it right yeah i don't like that sensation huh i hate horror movies for a similar reason okay. i don't like being startled okay i hate that more than anything <laughs> i don't like being a af- uh, not even afraid there's a different types of fear so when i when we were hiking the other day and yeah. i like hid yeah. did you start to f- feel that stress no okay no because i knew you must have been like around somewhere trying to fuck with me or something. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like I don't like being startled yeah. by something that is obviously like horrifying, right? But I love a slow burn terror. Yeah. I just don't like the being startled. I think it's right. the idea that like you looked at because like you know what it is. Scare. Yeah. I think the ocean idea is as close to a jump scare as it gets because you're you're not seeing it come. Yeah. You're just looking down and suddenly you see it. Yeah. And you're shitting yourself. Yeah. I dislike that. That's what it is. You're helping me. Am I? Oh, shit. We're helping you're you. You're helping me, Mr. Cat. Mr. Cat, yeah. I'm helping you uproot that. It's always hard to do this with an old friend. Um, like, this happened before with uh, Jesse, who get, went by his real name. Yeah. But because we're so familiar, we're just, yeah. it's, we're, we're very used to calling each other by our, our real names. So it's always like the old friend episodes where I have to like go back and like bleep out yeah. all the words, but it's okay. Mr. Cat, Mr. Salamander, our audience will understand, I hope. Yeah, well, that's an impressive, like an impressive set of accomplishments and um, and an impressive, like I, I wish you well on your journey. Is is there anything else you want to like talk or bring up before we sort of wrap this up? Because it's already twelve, and we have to be getting you to your 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 journey starting off point pretty soon. No, I actually think this has been great. I yeah. think it's been a really good way to help me level set for this journey I'm about to go on. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll do you'll start your you'll do your ayahuasca ceremony, and then well, I won't be able to put this podcast online um, because I'm doing a Wachuma ceremony mm-hmm. <laughs> this weekend as well. Um, but we'll get this online within the next week and then you'll be able to see how how different you feel, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, no, thank you, man. And me too, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great. All thank right. you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being a guest. Have a great day, Mr. Salamander. You too, Mr. Cat. <laughs> Bye.